Luke 15, 11 to 24. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out. And go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your father. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Morning, everyone. Great to be with you. My name's Ben, the pastor here. Uh, As Bron said at the start, we're in week four of a five-week series looking at uh, these three stories in Luke 15, particularly this third one, often called the story of the prodigal son. Um, Stories about God's grace. God's grace to lost people. We've, we've called the series The Prodigal God, uh, following uh, a book by Tim Keller. Um, that third story is often called The Prodigal Son. I don't know if you know what the word prodigal means. I mean, I grew up knowing the story of the prodigal son, but no idea really what that, meant, that word meant. If you look it up in the dictionary, prodigal means recklessly or wastefully extravagant. And so the story is called The Prodigal Son because that younger son squanders his wealth. He wastes it in wild living. But Tim Keller suggests that this story could or maybe even should be called The Prodigal God because the father in the story is recklessly extravagant in the grace that he shows to his lost sons. So in this series, we're looking particularly about how God's grace not only changes us as individuals, but changes us as a community, forms us as a unique kind of community. And so we've called the series The Prodigal God and the Community of Grace. This morning, as Bron said, we're thinking about forgiveness. The way the father uh, receives his wayward son is an amazing example of forgiveness. 
and we're going to think about how that applies to us as a community. So let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Luke's gospel. We thank you for this story that Jesus told, this story that's so rich and profound and has so much to teach us. We thank you for the presence of your Spirit with us this morning to be our teacher. And we pray that your Spirit would bring the truths of the gospel, the truths contained in the story, uh, to life for us this morning would make the truth of the gospel real to us, would imprint your grace upon our hearts and shape us as a community, a community uh, that is receiving your forgiveness and extending your forgiveness to, to one another and others, a community that is shaped by your grace and bringing glory to your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. So four things to guide us through, four things about biblical forgiveness. It makes the first move, it absorbs the pain, it requires inner power, it creates a unique community. Firstly, it makes the first move. Just look again at the father in this story. Look at him running down the road to embrace his son. It's an incredible reaction when you think about it. This son who has offended him so profoundly, torn the family apart and permanently lowered the family's wealth. And the father, you can imagine, standing on the porch of the house and he sees his son coming down the road, his foolish, arrogant, rebellious son. And at that point, the father doesn't know the son's heart, does he? For all he knows, the son could be coming to ask for more money. And yet, although there's a chance that he'll be wronged again, the father takes the initiative and goes out to his son. He runs to him and embraces him. He doesn't require the son to come to him and grovel before he forgives him. He just gives it, extends it. The son has come in repentance, but even before the son says anything, even before his well-practiced I'm so sorry speech, the father's already made the first move. In Mark 11, uh, verse 25, Jesus says this, When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Jesus is saying if, if we're holding anything against another person, we're to forgive them. Right there and then, as soon as we become conscious of the grudge that we're holding. He doesn't say, if they repent, if they come and grovel, then maybe give them a chance. No, even as you pray, forgive them in your hearts. Forgiveness is to be assertive, to make the first move. Don't stand on your porch. Don't wait for them to do something. You make the first move. You forgive Jesus talked a lot about forgiveness and reconciliation. Two two passages from Matthew's gospel. Matthew 5, Jesus says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So if someone 
has something against you, you've offended them in some way, will you take the initiative, Jesus says, to be reconciled? And resolving conflict, according to Jesus, is so important, it's even to interrupt our worship of God's. So someone's got something against you. You've offended them. You take the initiative. Second passage from Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. So here it seems Jesus is talking about if someone has sinned against you, a brother or sister has sinned against you, you take the initiative to be reconciled with them. Do you see what Jesus is saying? It's always your move. It's always your responsibility to go and seek reconciliation. Someone's offended by what you've done, you take the initiative to be reconciled. Someone's sinned against you, go and point it out to them. It doesn't matter who started it. It doesn't matter who's to blame. You make the first move. Don't stand on your porch waiting for them to come to you saying, well, it's their responsibility because they're probably standing on their porch doing exactly the same thing. And the whole world is full of stupid, unresolved conflicts because we're all standing on our porches with our arms crossed doing nothing. Jesus says, my love, my forgiveness is assertive. It takes the initiative. It makes the first move. Secondly, forgiveness absorbs the pain. True forgiveness always involves pain. It always involves absorbing pain rather than inflicting pain. Think about the son and the father in the story. That The son has wronged his father in two big ways. He's wronged him financially and he's wronged him socially. Financially, he's taken a third of the estate and he's wasted it. He's permanently lowered the family wealth. He's also wronged him socially. He has dishonored his father. And in an honor-shame culture, that was a big deal. The father has lost his social reputation in the community because of how his son has treated him. And so when the son comes back, the son knows that both those debts have to be dealt with. To deal with the financial debt, he asks to be taken on as a hired servant so he can pay back the inheritance that he's taken to deal with the social debt, this is subtle, but he shames himself. He says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. He's saying, in order for the father's dignity and reputation to be restored, he needs to be treated with justice. He has shamed his father, and now his father needs to shame him. In order to right the wrongs that the son has done, there needs to be some kind of payment made, a financial payment to restore the debt, a social payment to restore the honor, the father's honor. But what does the father do? He absorbs the debts himself. In terms of the financial debt, he completely refuses to take the son as a hired servant. He immediately restores the son into the family. A robe, sandals, a a ring, probably a signet ring. And a signet ring was the, the way that financial transactions were carried out. He's saying the son is back in the family with a share to the family's wealth 
and even a new inheritance. It's extravagant, reckless grace, isn't it? The father's not allowing his son to pay the debt. He absorbs it himself. And as for the social debt, far from acting to restore his honor and shame his son, what does the father do? He embraces yet more shame and loss of reputation. In those days, the inferior person would come to the superior. The superior person would stand stationary. But this father isn't content to stand, wait. No, he goes out to his son as if he's the inferior one. And he doesn't just walk out in a dignified manner. He runs. I've said in previous weeks, I think, Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run. It would have involved hitching up his robe, bearing his legs, and running down the road. It was a demeaning thing for him to do, but he doesn't care what anyone else thinks. He doesn't care about the loss of reputation. He absorbs the social cost in order to forgive and be reconciled to his son. He doesn't allow his son to grovel. He doesn't stand on his pride. And so both financially and socially, the father is saying, I'll take the debt. I'll absorb it myself. And that's the essence of what it means to forgive somebody. You see, whenever someone wrongs you, they've robbed you in some way. They've robbed you of money, or they've robbed you of happiness, or respect, or time, or care. They owe you. There's always a debt. And so when that has happened, you have a choice. There are always two options. Either you make them pay or you pay. Either you make them pay for the debt they owe or you absorb that debt yourself. The natural response, the far more common response, is to make the other person pay. So if they've ruined your reputation, maybe uh, dragged your name through the mud, well, you attack their reputation. Get a bit of your reputation back. If they've robbed you of happiness, then you you make them unhappy. Make them pay. If they've robbed you of love and care, then withhold your love from them. Avoid them. Be cold with them. Make them pay. But forgiveness means that we pay the debt ourselves. Forgiveness means we absorb the pain rather than inflicting it. The father in the story refuses to let his son pay. He absorbs the debt himself. Now, how on earth could the father respond in the way that he does? After all the wrong that's been done to him, we're told as soon as he sees his son, his heart is filled with compassion. Not bitterness, not anger, not hurt, not a desire to get back at his son, but compassion. How is that even possible? Well, it all depends on how the father's been thinking about the son while the son has been away. We're not told explicitly, but we know. You see, if all those months... The father had been nursing his wounds. 
if whenever he thought about his son, he felt resentment and anger and a desire to inflict pain, then when his son finally came back, he would have acted in line with those thoughts. He would have expressed his anger, shamed his son. But what has this father been doing? Well, he's absorbed the pain himself. He's turned away from anger, and in his heart, he's been blessing his son, kissing his son, praying for his son, longing for his son to return, wishing good for his son, longing to be reconciled. And so when he sees his son, he acts in line with those thoughts. He runs, he embraces his son, he kisses his son. The way to heal relationships, the way to get freedom from injuries done you in the past is by absorbing pain rather than inflicting it. That's hard. It's not an easy thing to do at all. It requires us to have inner resources and inner power. That brings us to our third point. Forgiveness requires an inner power. True forgiveness makes the first move. It absorbs the pain, and to do that requires inner power. When the father saw his son, we're told about his insides. While he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. The Greek word here is, brilliant word, splanknizdomai. Splanknizdomai. It means to be moved in your inward parts, in the very depths of your being. An American theologian called B.B. Warfield once wrote an essay called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. In it, he surveys all the words used to describe Jesus' emotions. And he says it's this word, splankness to my, that is used more than all the others put together. See, this is the heart of the Lord Jesus. He was a man moved to the very depths of his being with compassion, love for the lost. And Jesus, interestingly, uses this word to describe the Father in the story. We're, we're being invited to see the Lord Jesus in the Father. So think about how this forgiving father reveals our forgiving Lord. The father didn't stay on the porch, but went out to his son, losing his dignity and offering forgiveness despite the risk of being spurned again. And so the Lord Jesus didn't stay in heaven, but came to us. And he was shamed and spat upon. He didn't just give up his dignity he gave up his life. And not just at the risk of being rejected, he knew he would be rejected, even by his own people. Yet, while we were his enemies, he died for us. Why did he do that? Why did he do all of that for us? He's absorbing the debt, isn't he? Instead of inflicting pain, he absorbs it. Instead of making us pay for our sins, he pays for them himself so that he can embrace us. See, on the cross, Jesus was doing cosmically what all of us have to do whenever we forgive. And if you see 
that Jesus did that for you. If you feel even a fraction of the compassion and love of the Lord Jesus for you as he takes your sin and bears your shame and absorbs the pain that you deserve, well, it'll give you what you need, the inner resources, the inner power that you need to forgive others. See, forgiveness means that you release the other person from their debt. You absorb the debt yourself. How can you do that? Well, if you have $10 billion in your bank account, you can absorb a $1,000 debt pretty easily, can't you? And it's the gospel that gives you those resources, those riches that you need. So let's think concretely. Say you've been wronged by someone. You need to ask, what have they robbed you of? Let's say they've robbed you of reputation. They've dragged your name through the dirt. They've said things that have shamed you, damaged your name. There's a reputation debt, if you like. If that's the case, you need to grasp hold of the fact that in Jesus, you have a name. You have an honor and a status that far exceeds the highest accolades that this world can offer. You are known and delighted in by the Lord of the universe. You're adopted as his very own child. In the gospel, you have such riches of honor, such a name, that the loss of some worldly reputation can be absorbed you see? Let's take another example. Maybe you've been robbed of love. Someone's not cared for you as they should. Well, you need to grasp hold of the fact that in, in Christ, you are cared for by the sovereign creator. He knows every hair on your head. He guards and guides you every day of your life. He loves and cares for you so much he was willing to move heaven and earth to embrace you. Can you see, in the gospel, you have such riches of care and love. You can absorb the loss of love from another person. You see, in Christ, you're the world's first trillionaire. You have every spiritual blessing that it's possible to have. And so you have the resources, you have the riches that you need to accept and absorb the loss of money or happiness, or respect. You can absorb the debt that others owe you. You can release them from liability. So if you're aware of unforgiveness in your heart, you need to ask, what have you been robbed of? And how does Jesus meet that loss abundantly? So true forgiveness makes the first move. It absorbs the pain. It requires an inner power which comes from the gospel. Finally, it creates a unique community. What kind of community would we be if we really took very seriously this gospel forgiveness? Let me say one thing. We'd be a community in which confession and forgiveness and reconciliation happen all the time. 
In most other communities and relationships, people don't admit their resentments. They pretend there's nothing wrong, maybe especially in Adelaide's. And conflicts, therefore, are never dealt with. Relationships just go cold and people drift away. But Christians are people who acknowledge there's a problem and don't ignore it. They don't stay on the porch. They go out and they seek reconciliation. They don't go to the other person to make them pay. No, they absorb the pain themselves. They use the power of the gospel to forgive the other person in their heart. They go to be reconciled. You see, we need to distinguish between forgiveness and reconciliation. The Bible uses the word forgiveness for both. But I think it's helpful to distinguish between an inner heart forgiveness and an outer relational forgiveness. You know, when someone wrongs me, I can forgive them in my heart regardless of their response. I can absorb the pain. I can release them from the debt. I can let go of any grudge. That's something I can take responsibility for. But in order to be reconciled, in order for the relationship to be restored, there does need to be repentance on the part of the offending party. Does that make sense? And I think it's what we see in the Father. Even before the Son returns, he's forgiven him in his heart, hasn't he? But for the relationship to be restored, there needed to be repentance. The Son needed to come home. Now, let me say, even when relationship is restored, it doesn't mean that there are no limits or conditions. This is a whole other talk, really, but what I'm thinking of here is when there's been betrayal or abuse. Now, that can be forgiven, and relationship can be restored, but wisdom would suggest that you don't put the offender back in a position where they're going to easily abuse again. You put some boundaries and safeguards in place. But what I've really got in mind here and what's more kind of applicable day to day is the the small, lesser injuries and hurts that we do to one another through our careless words, our lack of love. And what I want to say is that the church is to be a community in which we don't let relationships go cold. Barney should be a community in which we're constantly having to reconcile. Let me say, that was a new idea for me when I first preached this series. I used to think that church unity meant being a church in which there was never any conflict. That would be a good thing. No conflict. I mean, I hate conflict personally. But that's rubbish, isn't it? There will always be conflicts, especially when we're seeking to live in deep relationship with one another. Think about healthy families. There are always disagreements and conflicts, but they deal with them. A united church is not one in which there's an absence of conflict, but one in which conflicts are constantly being dealt with. And it's not something we need to be scared of. It's an opportunity to actually deepen relationship and an opportunity to be the distinctive community that Jesus has formed us to be, a community shaped more and more by the grace of God's. I was talking with someone last week, and they were sharing their experience of being part of the community at Barney's. And they said that even over the last couple of of years, they've had a number of difficult conflict-resolving conversations in which hurts have been raised and forgiveness has been needed. 
and reconciliation has been achieved. I often say at weddings that husbands and wives need to practice their marriage vocab. I'm sorry. I forgive you. When two sinners start living together, learning to resolve conflict is a must. And when a community of people seeks to live in deep relationship with one another, the same is true. Shall we pray? And I'll give you a bit of time to reflect and process and pray in your heart, and then I'll lead us. Father, we thank you for your heart of compassion. Compassion towards us despite the wrongs that we've done and the deep offense that we've caused you. Thank you that in Jesus you made the first move. Thank you that on the cross he absorbed our debts so that we are released, set free, from each and every sin. Please humble us and by your spirit make the riches of the gospel real to our hearts so that we're able to let go and forgive the injuries done to us, whether small or great, whether from the recent past or the distant past. Please make us a community of grace in which we love one, other, one another deeply from the heart and we forgive one another as you've forgiven us. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.